Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast from BOI Charity that explores the important ideas and intellectual trends that are shaping the world today. In this episode, we feature the lecture, The Use and Abuse of the Legacy of the Civil Rights Movement. It's the fourth podcast in our series on race and racism, the theme of our recent Academy Online event. The emergence of Black Lives Matter has been accompanied by a renewed interest in the American civil rights movement that made such an impact in the 1960s. But what are the key attributes of that movement, and how should we assess today's interpretation of its history and legacy? The lecture is by Nicholas Kinloch, who for many years has taught history, and particularly American history. Nicholas has been a deputy president of the Historical Association and a teacher fellow of the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. Well, I'm going to start by saying that one reason I think the uh, modern sort of social justice movement has found it relatively easy to dismiss the legacy of the civil rights movement is that that legacy has rarely been properly appreciated. What I'm saying here is that even the conventional interpretation has always been, in my view, more than a bit suspect, so that it's been relatively easy for modern conventional uh, accounts to dismiss it or mount attacks against it. So what I'd like to do is to start with what we might call a bit of a reset in the conventional history of the civil rights movement before going on to examine how that conventional history has so readily been abused or still more commonly simply ignored. But even before I do that, it's worth considering and asking ourselves just why it is that the American civil rights movement should be such an important story in Great Britain. These events took place 50 years ago in a very dissimilar country thousands of miles away. And you might therefore think that it hasn't really got that much to do with British people of whatever colour. But that isn't the case, in fact. In British schools, it's a very widely taught topic indeed. And when I was a teacher trainer, uh, which I still do from time to time, I I used to ask who had studied American history at school. And the answer was that almost everyone had done so at some level or other. But further questioning revealed that in almost every case, the civil rights era was the only aspect of American history they had ever studied. So as a result, I'm not really surprised that many people today seem to see race in Britain and the United States in essentially similar ways. It's now quite common to see references to a British civil rights movement or a British black power movement, or to see the drawing of other Uh, apparent parallels between the British and American experiences of race. In my view, this convergence is actually much more apparent than real, and I'd go so far as to say that a great deal has had to be invented. The, The history of race in Britain is really so different from the United States legacy of recent domestic slavery and legal segregation 
that I don't think there's much valid comparison. For Black Lives Matter sympathizers in Britain, of course, there's a great deal to be gained by making just such comparisons. It helps form part of the so-called narrative in which racism is not only the ultimate explanation for almost everything, but forms the common denominator across the Western world. Back to the conventional story about civil rights. Well, it's almost always presented, not unfairly, as an inspiring tale of individual and collective heroism engaged in a non-violent struggle against an obvious evil. Its leaders, especially Martin Luther King, were saint-like figures who would eventually and inevitably and rightly get their memorials on the National Mall. The struggle was punctuated by great set-piece moments, you know, Rosa Parks and her bus, even Doctor Who appears to have heard of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott, the March on Washington, King's dream speech, Selma. Uh, there's quite a lot of truth in all this. And I don't want to sound in what follows as if I myself am in any way wishing to diminish the struggles of those who sought to gain civil rights in the United States. But it was never the whole story. And the gaps and distortions in conventional accounts have helped those who today would indeed dismiss the achievements of the civil rights era. Something that conventional accounts have tended to downplay is that the civil rights movement ha had effectively ran out of steam as early as 1967, which is when the black power movement really began to take off. It's, it's quite telling, I think, that even Martin Luther King changed his strategy in the last months of his life. Uh, his final campaign, of course, was the Poor People's March of 1968, in the course of which he was assassinated. Note that King was now campaigning for poor people without their race being specified at all. Of course, there was an overlap between the causes of civil rights and the more general one of poverty, but they weren't the same thing. Uh, one reason for the movement exhaustion, of course, was its internal divisions. These are worth remembering, if only because so much of today's activism is based on the inaccurate assumption that black people form a single monolithic block. In fact, the civil rights movement ha had always been a number of movements, some with incompatible aims and some targeting different audiences. The, the divisions in my view, went much, much deeper than the mere abandonment of non-violence advocated by such black power militants as Stokely Carmichael. It was Carmichael, following King's murder, who declared, I'm quoting, white America has declared war on us, go home and get your guns. This was very foolish advice, in my view, given that black people were only 11% of the population, in a racial war, black people were only going to lose. Um, something as true in 1968 as it was true, as it is true in 2020. But instead of being dismissed as the posturing it was, plenty of people in 1968 took to the streets. Riots and looting affected more than 100 American cities, and the main victims, just as in 2020, were black people. But even those who agreed on non-violence as 
the way forward were quite often mutually hostile. A good example uh, was King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the rival SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Both were committed to the peaceful achievement of civil rights. But the students, sometimes I think understandably, came to resent the power that King's organisation wielded. All too often, they found that their campaigns were ignored until King and his followers turned up, usually accompanied by television cameras. They'd follow a day or two of intense publicity in which the students were expected to do what King's followers told them. Then King would depart, often without much real change having taken place. And unlike the students, whose leaders included people such as Diane Nash and Gloria Johnson, there were few women in similar positions in King's organisation. So it wasn't surprising that SNCC became so hostile to King, and that legacy endures. According to Dewey Clayton of Louisville University, Black Lives Matter has decisively rejected the civil rights movement's hierarchical style of leadership, with the straight black male at the top giving orders. And it's certainly striking that Black Lives Matters has not, so far, seen the emergence of any charismatic leaders, and seems indeed rather averse to them. It might be worth noting at this point that the reference to straight in that quotation is also a highly significant one. The civil rights movement was largely conventional in its approach to such things, by which I mean, of course, that it was conservative and by today's standards, rather homophobic and sexist. Whereas today's BLM is fully engaged with modern identity politics. Its website declares that it gives special attention to the needs of black queers, the black transgendered, the black undocumented, the black incarcerated, and others, and attention would have seemed, I'm sure, utterly bizarre to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. The reason, of course, is that by doing so, it seems to offer something for just about anyone who can claim victim status. And to that degree, it resembles the end of the civil rights era rather than its heyday. It is not, as some claim, the lineal descendant of the civil rights movement, it's the lineal descendant of its radical successors, such as the Black Panther Party. Back to the conventional account of the civil rights movement and uh, how I think that has not helped to uh, clarify what the civil rights movement was really about. Uh, one of the most important things about the civil rights movement was that it encouraged the enactment of court decisions and legislation. Of course, the marches, demonstrations and speeches were crucial. Without them, the government would never have intervened at all. But it was the passing of legislation or court decisions such as the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in schools, which effectively started the movement, or as important, the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. These things ensured that the movement would be more than just a moment. But legislation, and it's usually quite slow implementation, 
rarely makes for compulsive storytelling, even if lawyers would like to argue otherwise. Everyone's heard of Rosa Parks, fewer have heard of Hubert Humphrey or Earl Warren. There was another issue with legislation, of course. It swept away virtually all the legal foundations of segregation. Within a few years of the Voting Rights Act, there were black sheriffs and police chiefs, as well as city mayors and state and federal politicians, all of whom were black. So far, you might say, so good. But modern critics, and not all of them on the left, have pointed out that these changes did not automatically mean that black Americans as a whole were better off. You can see that with school segregation. It declined for decades, but then sharply reversed so that schools in all regions became more segregated. In the South, the percentage of black students in majority white schools was 23% in 1968, rose to 44% in 1991, but by 2015 was back down to 23%. And meanwhile, the wealth gap between black and white families has widened and the inequality gap between whites and blacks has also increased or held steady in everything from infant mortality to home ownership. One consequence of all this is today is that militant activism is often seen as the only way forward. One BLM supporter interviewed in Chicago recently stated that the way history has worked, the way that we've ever got wins has come through revolts. Winning has come through riots. As so widespread is this view that BLM has never felt the need to mention any laws they propose that would end the systemic racism they blame for most ills. And that's because they don't see such respectable routes as any kind of solution. In their view, the civil rights movement's successes were transitory and they don't intend to make the same mistake. It isn't surprising, of course, that this should be the activist reaction. Activism is what activists do. You might go further and say that is all they do. As Tanya Fison, co-founder of the Sacramento BLM, put it in March 2020, the only thing that will fix this is a revolution and elections aren't revolutions. One of the other things that I think has been consistently downplayed in conventional accounts of the civil rights movement is the support of white people. That underplaying, of course, isn't surprising. Today's activists uh, fear any idea that improvement might be brought about by what they would call white saviors. But it was a very important feature nonetheless. And at the time, white support was for the most part freely given and freely accepted. Several such supporters lost their lives. Perhaps the most famous example of that came in the Freedom Summer of 1964, in which large numbers of young Northern whites, many of them students, went to Mississippi to encourage voter registration. Of the three civil rights workers murdered by the Klan in Neshoba County in Mississippi, one was black, but the other two were Jewish students from New York. 
there was a long history of support for the civil rights movement from the Jewish community. It began to fray in the late 1960s, and by 2020, I think you can say it had vanished. Few were surprised then to see that BLM describes Israel as an apartheid state perpetrating genocide, or that BLM's UK representatives claimed that people were gagged of the right to, to uh, criticize Zionism. I think it would be going too far to state that BLM is anti-Semitic, but it might be accurate to suggest that some of its members are, and that minimizing the role of white support for the civil rights movement has assisted that development. The confusion, I, I won't put it more strongly than that, about the real nature of the civil rights movement's success has made it much easier for its legacy to be challenged in our own day. I don't think there's much doubt that the, the leaders of BLM have little time for the civil rights movement. Uh, how could they? Many civil rights leaders were religious and the black churches played an enormous role in both organizing and financing the movement. But uh, BLM, was founded by Marxists, whatever the Church of England might say. It's partly a distaste for capitalism, for example, that explains the support for, for looting, which is quite common amongst black activists nowadays. One BLM supporter in Chicago, uh, Ariel Atkins, went so far as to claim that looting was merely a form of reparations and that she couldn't see that business was something that black people needed. In her view, looting them was merely what black people did in order to survive. She went even further than that, actually, and I'm quoting here, the whole idea of criminality is racism anyway, because criminality is punishing people for things that they need to do to survive, or just the way that societies affected them with white supremacist bullshit. The civil rights movement, by contrast, was very keen to distance itself from obvious criminality, and it had an equally strong aversion to any obvious association with Marxism. When King was accused of having communist advisers, he dropped them, sometimes reluctantly, but he dropped them. The veteran civil rights campaigner Robert Woodson recently observed, BLM are trying to trade on the moral authority of the civil rights movement. During the movement, we had standards of both character and behavior as to who could participate in the marches. And if people came in and were disrupted with their own agenda, we expelled them. At the civil rights movement heart were, were principles of redemptive love and non-violence. And I think neither of those could be considered central to uh, modern critical race theory. Many of the key figures in the civil rights movement were American patriots, and a good number were war veterans, such as Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader from Mississippi, assassinated in 1963. What such people wanted to do, and I think what King was wanted to do, was to participate in the American dream on an equal footing with everyone else. In other words, they sought equality of opportunity. Today's activists demand equality of outcome, which is what you'd expect Marxists to wish for. The first, equality of opportunity, was to some extent at least perhaps achievable. The second, 
in my view, is not and probably never will be. Where the civil rights movement sought integration, elements of the modern movement seek separation, based in some cases on quite explicit anti-white racism. As the co-founder of BLM Toronto put it, white people are a genetic defect of blackness, white people are recessive genetic defects, melanin directly communicates with cosmic energy. So if they disapprove of the civil rights movement, uh, have today's activists uh, taken anything from it at all? Well, they, they've certainly understood the importance of the media. The campaigns of the 1960s were to a great extent played out on television. Scenes of violence against civil rights protesters in Birmingham, Alabama, for example, in 1963, were key in influencing public opinion more favorably to their cause. The media were then often accused by the movement's opponents of acting as its propaganda wing, and there was quite a lot of truth in that. There's even more truth in it now, when much of the media has abandoned any attempt at impartiality and is happy, like CNN, to describe fiery protests as mostly peaceful. And current activists, of course, have the advantage of social media. One student said, I, I don't watch the news very often, so I don't think I would have known the full extent of the circumstances around George Floyd's death without social media. It has served to educate me on the wider history of the Black Lives Matter movement and on my own privilege. Uh, an article on the student website Redbrick, it's a British website, uh, noted that activism has never been so easy. I'm just going to finish now, but I thought it was worth concluding with the words of Hawk Newsom, leader of BLM's Greater New York chapter. He said quite recently, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. I just want black liberation and black sovereignty by any means necessary. Those who imagined that Martin Luther King or the late John Lewis could have uttered such words, I think, delude themselves. You've been listening to the lecture The Use and Abuse of the Legacy of the Civil Rights Movement by Nicholas Kinloch, which was recorded at the Academy Online event Race and Racism. The next podcast in this series will feature Brendan O'Neill, who will explore the troubled universalism of the souls of black folk. The seminal work by W.E.B. Du Bois, published in 1903. Make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing to Ideas Matter on this or any other podcast feed. And for more details of the Academy event where this lecture was recorded and to access a series of recommended readings to help you explore the themes in greater depth, have a look at the accompanying notes to this podcast or visit the Academy at our website, theboi.co.uk. Finally, if you're able to give a financial donation to support this podcast or any of the BOI charity's other projects, then please head over to our website and hit the donate button. Thanks. Thanks.